Hi, and welcome to the final episode of 2021 of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is astronomer at large, Dr. Fred Watson. Now, Fred has had a long and accomplished career in astronomy, working in industry to research to even running the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Coonabarabran. I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Fred about almost every aspect of his long and distinguished journey in the field of astronomy. So uh, I'll just get you to introduce yourself just to get things started, Fred. I'm very happy to. My name is Fred Watson. I am Australia's astronomer at large. That's my job, which, believe it or not, is a real job. Uh, uh, I work in the Commonwealth Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, um, and um, they look after things like the Square Kilometre Array and the uh, deal that we have with the European Southern Observatory and I sort of help out with things like that, as well as doing things like this, uh, talking about uh, exciting things to do with the universe. Um, just to um, give you the background, though, uh, my job, uh, I've always been an astronomer. I've worked in most areas of astronomy. I've worked at both of the British Royal Observatories, the one in Edinburgh, the one it used to be in Greenwich, but it wasn't when I was there, um, and came to Australia uh, in 1982. I then went back to the UK and came back again in 95 as the astronomer in charge of the National Observatory, which is of the National Optical Observatory, uh, that is at Coonabarabran. Uh, in northwestern New South Wales on Gamilaray land. And so from 1995 to uh, 2015, that was my job. So I didn't actually know that Astronomer at Large was your official job title. So, yeah, is, it is. is, yeah. Uh, so, what you gave us sort of a brief description there. What, what exactly is your role now as, a, as Astronomer at Large? Yeah, so I, I should just explain how the name came about. Um, and it, it um, so uh, the story is that uh, the National Observatory, the National Optical Observatory, was called the Australian Astronomical Observatory. As I said, it had its telescopes at Coonabarabran, uh, and I uh, was its astronomer in charge, based up there, in fact. Um, but in 2018, the observatory ceased to become a government institution and it was devolved to the university sector. Uh, so most of my colleagues at uh, both at our Sydney headquarters and at the site itself went to the university sector, the Sydney people to Macquarie University, which you may have heard of, uh, and the Coonabarabran people to the Australian National University, which now operates the telescope. But I was the oddball and I elected to stay with the parent government department in a an outreach and advisory and advocacy role um, and so they looked around for a new title for this job um, and somebody said if you make him the astronomer at large you only have to change four letters on the office door from astronomer in charge and that's <laughs> everybody fell about laughing and and it stuck and actually the, the then minister for science karen andrews she liked the idea so she got an astronomer at large which i'm very happy about um, that's the background what do i do um, a lot of it is outreach um, so i do still do quite a number of radio broadcasts every uh, every month. I do a, a weekly podcast with my 
co-podcaster Andrew Dunkley. I'm not sure whether it's uh, polite to advertise one podcast on another, but um, <laughs> it's called Space Nuts. Uh, it uh, is every week, as I said, we, we look at space news, uh, space and astronomy news, and uh, we have a segment every week on listener questions. Um, we are just about to record next week, episode 270, uh, and in that time, the, the few years that we've been doing it, we've had two million downloads. So uh, it seems to be doing OK, uh, which baffles me because, it, uh, you know, it's just a, a chat between two old dudes interested in astronomy uh, and what's going on at, at the moment. So that's that's part of it. Uh, but there is a kind of grown up side to the job um, when, for example, there are ministerial questions about uh, you know things to do with astronomy i tend to get uh, asked about it because mo most of my colleagues in the department of industry science energy and uh, resources they are mostly bureaucrats their background is not science and so i'm a bit of an oddball i often tell people that the department consists of 2400 bureaucrats and one astronomer and it, it's, it sort of works quite well that way so um and once once in a while um there, there's a high level committee or something that needs some sort of science input and I get work involved with that. Um, I don't work very closely with her, but I, I do occasionally see the chief scientist, Cathy Foley. Uh, she's not an astronomer either, but she's a, an extremely well-known and well-respected scientist and it's quite nice to bump into her from time to time. Just gonna say that's more or less it. Um, it's, uh, to be honest, uh, it is probably my dream job. Uh, and I feel very fortunate to have it, um, especially because I'm not a young person anymore. Uh, and, you know, I never expected that um, at my age I would still be doing exciting stuff connected with the science of the universe. So it, it thrills me. So is that the point uh, in your career where you sort of made the shift from, uh, you know, research and, and, and field work into outreach and communication? Or yes, it... to some extent, that's true. It, it, sorry, I, I, I interrupted. Sorry, you. or was it sort of a gradual sort of bleeding yeah. into each other? It, it, it was. It was much more gradual. It wasn't a sudden shift. So um, I got, in fact, I've been mixed up with astronomy outreach all my working life um, from, you know, when I used to work at the Royal Greenwich Observatory 100 years ago. Uh, it was it's something I've always had a passion about because the, you know, we get paid uh, as working astronomers to do stuff that really thrills and excites us uh, because you don't do it for the money, you do it for the, you know, because it's, it's your passion. Uh, and I always felt that since we are generally funded from the public purse, um, I certainly have been all my life, uh, apart from one job in industry at the beginning, which we can talk about if you like, but um, that um, but, um, all my life I've been paid out of the, the public exchequer. So I've always felt there was a real responsibility to feed it back, apart from the fact that I love telling people about what's going on in, in space, what's going on in the sky. Um, so it was a, a gradual transition. And I guess what, you know, your point is well made in that uh, really from the, uh, you know, from the uh, beginning of, well, middle actually of 2018 when I became astronomer at large the emphasis was more on outreach and advocacy than on managing a scientific facility which I was doing before that and research uh, which I was also doing I, I still um, I'm connected with some big research projects which I'm honored to be um, but um, these days 
I don't feel as, as though I make much of a contribution to them because they're all big teams. They're, they're survey teams looking at uh, usually hundreds of thousands of objects. Uh, so why don't we just uh, jump into that little job in industry that you mentioned? I'm curious to know about that. So can you tell us about oh, that little okay. stint in industry? Yeah. So it was two years. Uh, I was a new graduate. I just uh, graduated with my degree in mathematics and physics. It started off being an astronomy degree, but I got cold feet about whether I'd ever get employment as an astronomer. So I switched to maths and physics. This was from the University of St Andrews um, in Scotland, Scotland's oldest university, founded in 1413, and I was there shortly afterwards. <laughs> so um, it, it, you know, it, it was something I was very proud of. But um, my passion was, uh, and to some extent still is, uh, in, in terms of the professional contribution that I might have made, was on instrumentation in astronomy. Uh, telescopes, the auxiliary instruments that you use, spectrographs, things of that sort. Um, and so my first job was working for a company that no longer exists. They rejoiced in the name of Sir Howard Grubb Parsons and Company Limited. Uh, they went back to the 1850s um, and um, were based in Newcastle on Tyne uh, in the UK. Um, so I worked there for two years as, an, as a, an optical physicist, working principally on telescope optics. Um, and some of those were optics to fly on spacecraft. In fact, when Neil Armstrong work, walked on the moon, I was working on a, on a project re which rejoiced in the name of S68. It was a, an ultraviolet telescope for a spacecraft called TD1, which flew in 1972. So, um, you know, I was already heavily involved with this sort of stuff, but uh, Grubb Parsons, their principal um, manufacturer were big telescopes and all the big telescopes in the, I guess the period uh, between the turn of the 20th century and the 1980s, all the big telescopes that were commissioned by the British, I should say, uh, came from Grubb Parsons, um, including the Anglo-Australian telescope, which I later became astronomer in charge of, and its sibling on the same mountaintop, the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope. So yes, yeah, so it's a really good foundation in optics. I um, have to say that with hindsight, I, I don't think I shone in that job because I, I had a secondary career, which was um, a musician. And um, so that took up quite a lot of time and energy and effort. Uh, and um, well, I know what it's like being an out of work musician. And in, in the end, the, the astronomy won. What did you play? Still do, play guitar. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, and um, and in fact, in those days, it was very much the folk blues uh, genre was uh, uppermost. And there were, this was in the UK, there were folk clubs, um, blues clubs all over Scotland and Northern England, and I used to play in them. Um, I, in fact, I was half of a band, uh, the other half of which is still a professional musician, um, Kenny Brill over there in Scotland. Um, I did, uh, I should just do a plug here, I did make a CD uh, in... Uh, in what was it year was it 2008 um just in celebration of the international year of astronomy i, I for a while wrote daft science songs uh, jokey songs about science and astronomy and they're all on the cd <laughs> so but um you know I, when i think about it i don't think a career in music would have been really quite as good as a career in astronomy has turned out to be uh, imagine if something were a little slightly bit different would have maybe we would have been talking to uh... <laughs> A musician, musician at large. <laughs> musician yeah. at large in the Australian government. Right. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a musician as well. My saxophone's just behind the desk there. So. I, I did I did notice there was something in the, <laughs> in the background. Just peeking there. up above the desk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that the uh, that you worked at the company that that uh that helped 
helped manufacture the the uh, Anglo Australian telescope, and then you obviously in charge of that. So, what was that like yeah. being in charge of that that telescope for for, for as long as you were? It, it was uh, well, it was two edged really. It was um, like being the manager of a lolly shop because <laughs> you know we were the shopkeepers, and so you're on site. And uh, the way the telescope works. Uh, and still does is that it's uh, the astronomers who use it apply for time on it and it's a very selective process uh, when i was running the the you know scientific output of the telescope or when i was astronomer in charge the the oversubscription rate was about three to one. So for every night on the telescope, there are three groups of astronomers who wanted to use it. It's fallen a little bit since then, but it's still oversubscribed. It's still a selective process. So um, you have this succession of very gifted and able astronomers coming to the telescope to use it. Uh, and, you know, I picked their brains and got mixed up with what they were doing and often found myself working on their research with them if it was stuff that I, I was already aligned with. Um, so uh, it was great from that point of view, but it was also slightly terrifying because you are running a national facility, which is really has to be 100% efficient every night uh, of the year, apart from a few nights around full moon uh, in February when we used to recoat the, the mirror. Uh, so um, it, it was there was certainly a, an amount of responsibility with it. But the, the other side of it, though, was that all the staff were totally dedicated. It was not like trying to whip people into performing well. They they usually left me behind because they they were expert in what they uh, in the, the various bits of the science and engineering that they were involved with. And they really didn't need any management. It was just a catch up from time to time. So it was yeah, it was a great job. And so that allocation that you were talking about was was that like one of the biggest challenges of that of that position, or was it something else that was quite challenging for you? Um, the, the, so the allocation of time was not part of uh, my remit, and not even part of the observatory's remit. There was an independent panel, uh, an expert panel, a peer review panel, essentially that took all the applications for telescope time. They were done on a semester basis, um, February to August, and then, you know, or, or February to July and August to, to, to January. Uh, and that, um, so the, the, the applications went before a panel of, of, of really pretty eminent astronomers, generally speaking, uh, who would, um, you know, decide on what had the most scientific merit. And that was the only criterion, it was scientific merit. So what we got as the observatory's management was just essentially a list of who'd won the time and how many nights they'd won. And in those days, four nights was a big allocation. Um, it, you know, it was a lot of time. So that, um, that was a, uh, a challenge, uh, keeping, just keeping up with things, making sure that we had the the right instruments on the telescope. I have to say that that side of it, the engineering side of it, was looked after by an operations manager who was my colleague, the um, several Chris uh, um, Chris McCowage, Doug Gray, a number of other people were my offsiders on the engineering side of opposite numbers, uh, and it worked really well. So my job was the scientific manager, management management, for example, of the night assistant group, of our archive group, of our IT group uh, at that time. Uh, so you've also been doing a lot of astrotourism recently with your partner Marnie, and you've been going yeah. abroad a lot. So what's that been like in as a as a as a sort of almost like a bit of a what's the word I'm trying to think of uh, divergent uh, line of yeah, line of work um, that you've done? Uh, uh, 
a moonlighting job yeah. as a technical <laughs> term, I think. But it, but it's so uh, so for these things, I should say I always take leave uh, from my day job. Um, but it, but the two do do dovetail into one another, and it's just um, that astronomy tourism is just another form of outreach, really, of science outreach. But you're you're perhaps aiming at a slightly narrower audience than you might be if you were on the radio or something like that. But these things have ways of opening up. You you know, it's the people that we make contact with often that leads to other things where we can reach out to a much greater number of people. So yes, you're right, Marnie's background um, is in tourism. We uh, started up uh, as, a, as a team to do science tours back in the end of 2006, in fact, is 15 years ago, almost. Um, her background in tourism, mine in science, meant that we could think about doing things like eclipse tours, like tours to see the northern uh, lights in far northern Scandinavia, which have been the most popular tours we've done. We've done several of those. Uh, or or uh, historical tours. Like, in fact, the, the first one that we well actually the first one we did was down to peru uh, to look at archaeo astronomy sites um, and that was very exciting to to get among sites that have got astronomical significance because of people you know 14 15000 years sorry 100 years ago uh, building um, things that aligned with the stars and things of that sort um, but my real focus right back at the, the beginning was I'd just written a book about the history of telescopes called Stargazer uh, and um, I wanted to be able to take Australian people to all the places where um, this early history was forged most of which was in Europe it kind of kicked off in in the Netherlands actually that's where the telescope emerged from the woodwork um, and of course Galileo in Italy heard about it a year or so later and so we did all those places we um, our tour in 2008 was the 400th birthday of the telescope um, we actually celebrated its 400th birthday on the day at the place where uh, where it was uh, where it came you know where it basically was first recorded which is in the the Binnenhof which is the the, the parliament building uh, in The Hague in the Netherlands um, uh, I think it was the 23rd of September. It, there's a record of it appearing in the in the in the archives that this guy turned up with a tube with a lens at each end and said, "Look what I've got." And of course, actually, the Netherlands were were at war with the Spanish at the time, so he was hoping this was a strategic deterrent that would uh, would help the Netherlands. Um, and you know, it, it did to some extent, but actually, it was the astronomy that really benefited from it uh, with Galileo. So yes, our first tour was to celebrate the 400th birthday of the telescope uh, in uh, 2008. It was a great time. That was a, that was a great way to, to start your, yeah. your to, to start the, yeah, the new adventure. career. Yeah, yeah, it was. And so you've mentioned you've been the author of a number of books. What's been your favourite one to, to, to write? <laughs> Probably that one, actually, um, although it might have been eclipsed with the one I've just done. So um, most of the um, astronomy books that I've done have been kind of general introductions to astronomy stargazer was very much a history of the telescope it actually took four years to write it took forever it was a, a long slow job um, but um, i've always tried to weave some of the history into the out, the astronomy outreach books because i think it's a good way to teach astronomy um, and the reason why i say that stargazer might have a competitor as my favorite is because uh, i've just finished a book for young people uh, for the eight to 12 age group, which uh, starts 
from basic stargazing and takes people to the edge of the universe. It's um, a book that I'm, I'm hopeful of. It will come out in October. Um, it's also close to my heart because uh, about 50 years ago, I used to do a lot of sketching and drawing and then suddenly stopped uh, because life got too complicated. But I started again for this book. So it's full of cartoons and illustrations. Uh, we'll see what people think of it when it uh, when it emerges. We're up to three plugs now, friends. <laughs> three plugs. Oh, I'm sorry. By the way, it's called, uh, what is it called? Space Warp. That's his name. <laughs> I don't yeah, mind. three plugs, that's you, right. You can plug Actually, as many things as you want. No, it's four, isn't it? Because we've done the CD as well. Oh, no, you're right. It is four. So, yeah, we, we'll go for a new record in my pod. Oh, we've, we've hit a record in my podcast, which is four. I think one okay. was... <laughs> was a record in itself so no, it's, it's it's shame shameless self-promotion oh, no, i do apologize <laughs> totally fine i don't mind at all um so i think i guess you know with outreach one of the main things the main challenges would be you know getting people to to care about astronomy and to and what's what why should people care about astronomy and that's sort of a big question that's always on the minds of science communicators yeah, um, I mean, the, the, generally speaking, we don't really have too much trouble interesting people at, at some level in astronomy because people, are, they do wonder about our origins and our destiny and they sense that a lot of that is, is locked up or that information is locked up in what astronomy tells us. And indeed, that's correct. We sort of know where the elements in our bodies came from and all of that sort of thing. So people are generally fascinated by it. Um, I don't think there's any imperative that people must get interested in astronomy. But um, what we want to do uh, in the world of astronomy is to make uh, things as easy as possible for people who do. And I should say that um, I'm a great fan of the amateur community in that regard, because amateur astronomers, you know, the members of astronomy clubs and things like that, they do give people and uh, who are interested and you know there's a spark of fascination there they do give those people an avenue that they can actually meet other folk who know more about it than they do you know they give them an opportunity to look through largish telescopes and things of that sort so the amateur astronomy community really is the bedrock of of um, astronomy communication uh, to the wider public and um it's why I, you know, I try and support the amateur community uh, whenever I can. I'm, I'm a patron of a number of astronomy groups and I try and make sure I give talks to them as often as I can do. So um, I, think, I think it's more, you know, people, people are fascinated, but particularly with all the stuff that's going on in space as well. You know, the fact that we've got various rovers on Mars, we've got a helicopter on Mars, for goodness sake. Um, it, 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 people see these things in the media and I think it sparks their interest and perhaps we provide a way of the, uh, giving them further information. Decoding the... Yeah, what's, what's simplifying the... That's right, yeah. Um, what about uh, what about your, your research history? What, what kind of research have you done in your in your in yeah. your career, and sort of what was some memorable projects that you're a part of, and that, that you like to think kindly back on? Yeah, so uh, in many ways, um, I've done a bit of everything. You know, so it started off working in industry on astronomical in instrumentation, then I went back to university, back to St Andrews, in fact, uh, to do a masters in astronomy, and my 
thesis was about uh, asteroid orbit. So I learned a lot about asteroids. Uh, from there, I went to the Royal Greenwich Observatory where I worked on the orbits of planets. Um, uh, a lot of this was just computation. You know, there wasn't that much uh, novel research coming out of it, although there were a few, a few, a few papers and articles that we produced. Um, and then I swapped to look at the way rather than the way planets move around the sun, I moved on to the way stars move around the center of our galaxy, uh, went to the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh and worked on, um, in fact, a particular class of variable star, I think it's called RLRE variables, which were hot topics at that time, because they have the property of being a kind of standard candle. And so we were measuring the distance to the galactic center, but also looking at the uh, some aspects of the galaxy that were not at that time well understood. Um, the the person I worked with, he was my supervisor, a man called Victor Klug uh, at Edinburgh, now long retired. He had a, a notion that our galaxy is actually expanding, that it's getting bigger. And so we were looking to see whether the motions of stars around the center of the galaxy had any radial motion, showing any outward motion that would have revealed that. Um, I think that theory is now pretty well and truly debunked. Uh, it was probably local effects that we were seeing, but that was the kind of stuff I was doing. What is, is, is a, um, a discipline known as stellar kinematics, the, the, the movement, the motions of the stars. And from there, I, I sort of um, springboarded back to instrumentation because I got mixed up when I came to Australia with um, something that was brand new in those days. And there was only two observatories doing it. Um, and I was very closely attached to one of them. And that was the use of optical fibers uh, to, to grab the light from many objects simultaneously in the field of view of the telescope. So we pioneered this technique of what's called multi-fiber spectroscopy, which allows you not just to look at the detailed rainbow spectrum of one object with its barcode of information, but, um, well, it was tens or dozens simultaneously when I started, but now it's thousands at a time. Literally, this technology has expanded over the last 30, 40 years. So um, that was very exciting. And then having built um, a fiber optic system for the UK Schmidt telescope, um, I was using it to do things like work on the motions of stars around the center of our galaxy. And that then translated into the motions of galaxies in the universe. So uh, what I've done is a bit of everything, but it's always been at least since the fiber optics stuff started, that's the early 1980s. It's always been what's, what you might call survey astronomy, where you're looking at very large numbers of objects. And in fact, I've managed a number of big survey projects on the Schmidt telescope. One was the 60F Galaxy Survey, which measured uh, 150,000 galaxies and something called RAVE, which always sounds exciting, the radial velocity experiment, uh, which was led by colleagues in Potsdam in Germany. Uh, but basically, we surveyed the speeds and chemistry of half a million stars in our galaxy. So that's the research that I've been involved with, always with pretty large numbers of people, in fact. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge that's going to be facing astronomy heading into the future? Well, one of them is a good challenge, actually, and that is we're drowning in data. Uh, and that's because partly it's partly my fault <laughs> because, um, you know, it's not just my fault, obviously, but, uh, but uh, there's this handful of us who saw the potential for fiber optic spectroscopy. Now we've, we've got instruments, as I said, that can, that can grab data on thousands of objects simultaneously. Uh, so it means that you can do a night's observing 
and get information on 10,000 galaxies, for example. Now, that's a huge number. And of course, it's all the handling is all with um, with large supercomputers, uh, the data handling, and it's very highly automated. But it's still a challenge to uh, to, you know, to, to to for people to have time in their research careers to actually extract all that is in these data sets. And that challenge is ongoing because we've got the square kilometer array in the in the radio wave band. Um, square kilometre array which is being built in Western Australia and Southern Africa. Uh, there is in fact the, the, the contracts are being let for the construction of that uh, set of instruments as we speak. Um, the Pathfinder instruments that have been built already are doing marvellous work and uh, you know once again they're dis disgorging these huge quantities of data. So that's one challenge and that's the good one. The other ones um, uh, is is a is, a, is a, I think more of a what you would think of as a challenge and that is that a lot of this stuff is expensive um, and there's got to be a balance between uh, institutions like universities um, the, the, the funding or funding facilities like the Australian Research Council uh, to give enough funding out to scientists to allow them to do their job but balance that against the kind of infrastructure funding, which is also necessary because big science is, is very expensive. And, and an example of that is that we now here in Australia have a 10 year strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory, which has the, the best uh, te instrumented telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere, four 8.2 metre telescopes at a place called Cerro Paranal in Northern Chile. Those uh, instruments are what Astro Australian astronomers have, have yearned to use for for well decades in fact um, but it was only in 20, 2017 that it became their right as of a deal that the Australian government did with the with the European Southern Observatory but that deal was not cheap it's a 10-year deal and it's worth about 128 million dollars uh, you know this is for astronomy that's big money um, I worked out yesterday, actually, that it's enough to keep the US military going for 53 minutes. Uh, but it's, you know, that's a different ball game that you're in there. Uh, for astronomy, $128 million is a lot of money. And likewise, the Square Kilometre Array, the Australian government will, ex will invest about $600, sorry, $600 million in that by the time they're finished. Um, that will produce jobs, of course, not just in science, but in engineering to, to, to make the system work. It will, it will have civil, you know, civil engineering even to, 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 to build the, the, the facilities themselves. Uh, and we'll, so, we'll also produce revenue because uh, it's a multinational project. So there's international revenue flowing into Australia too uh, for the telescope. So, but th those are the, the challenges, data and money, basically, and it's probably always been like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, um, Fred, before I, before I wrap it up? Just one mention of, um, and you've already talked about Dark Skies with Marnie, mm. um, but um, that was a big part of my job towards the end of my time, actually, for most of my time, in fact, as astronomer in charge at the Australian Astronomical Observatory, because one of the important things is to make sure it stays competitive in terms of its dark skies. And so I did a lot of work on um, uh, both the, the science of uh, light pollution, but also the legislation 
so the observatory site is protected by state legislation, um, which limits what kind of lights can be put in uh, out to a distance, actually of 200 kilometers from the observatory, ultimately, if it's a coal mine or something like that. Um, and that um, part of my job really ceased when I became astronomer at large, except that I do still sit on a couple of um, standards committees. Uh, these are Australian standards to do with lighting. Uh, and so there are committees of mostly lighting engineers, but I represent the Astronomical Society of Australia on those committees to wave the flag for dark skies and um, you know good lighting. And I'm glad to say that that message is getting through. I think these panels are actually waking up to the fact that uh, sky glow is, is, is bad and uh, protecting the night sky is actually something very important. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.